This episode, Justice League International, number eight, cover dated December 1987. Welcome to the eighth episode of Justice League International, Bwahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. My name's the Irredeemable Shag, and I'm your host, but I'm not flying solo. Every single episode, I'll feature a different guest host. My co-host today has been a friend of mine for about 24 years. Well, if you could call it a friend. Anyway, he's a trivia wizard, a true board game geek, a geography savant, and he taught me to appreciate the JLI even more. Folks, please help me welcome Mr. Patrick Pence. Welcome to the Embassy, Patrick. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Shag. It is a joy to be here. I appreciate it. I'm excited because, you know, this may be the first and last time I'm on your podcast. Well, based on how previous entries have gone on the show, it's probably going to be your last. And the fact that I've known you all these years, <laughs> I it's bad enough that when I end up in the same place as you in social situations, I have to pretend like we're friends. So, <laughs> Yeah, to know me is to avoid me. <laughs> Just to set the stage, folks, Pat and I go way back to our college years. We had been friends. We would play lots of games. Eventually, he ended up as my neighbor. And remember when you'd watch Three's Company and Larry would just walk into the you know the place and go into the kitchen and start eating Jack's food? It was a little bit like that with Pat. Um, in my in my defense, I was always trying to get Shag to come with me to the Regal Beagle, you know, because that's always a fun time. <laughs> I wanted to go over to your apartment, hit on your roommate, but anyway. All right. <laughs> oh, those, those were the days. <laughs> Folks, yes, this is Patrick's first time on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. We uh, used to appear on a show together called The Unique Geek, which I think are still available out on the interwebs. I think so, yeah. If you do a little, you know, Google is your friend. I'm sure you can find some uh, some streaming content there somewhere. Streaming content done in a very stream of consciousness kind of way. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, it's, it's funny that you, you call me a trivia wizard. Uh, yes, I, I've added some, in addition to being master of ceremonies, I'm sort of a generator of glibness. And a wrangler of witticisms, as oh I say. Oh, my gosh. That's, I swear, to, swear to God, that's what my LinkedIn profile says for, for my gigs. <laughs> Pat is a professional, and I'm using that word in the correct sense, professional trivia god. And, in fact, if you look at his resume, my friend here actually – and, again, I don't really mean friend. It's just for conversation, folks. Hey, hey, hey. Anyway, he <laughs> actually appeared on Jeopardy with Alex Trebek and everything. Yes, those 15 minutes are almost up. <laughs> so did you say, I'll take the rapist for 500? Yeah, well, you know, you, you have that desire to mock Alex, but you see him and talk to him so seldomly that you really, you know, it's it's very, it's well-produced and well-managed. So, you know, the, the chances to, to kind of pop off on Alex are, are limited. <laughs> So did you get a chance to like talk to him other than what happens on TV, or is it like he's immediately whisked off and doesn't have time for you people? He he actually whisks on and whisks off, but during they'll actually do you know commercial breaks in real time, so they'll stop tape and he'll come over and he'll talk to the audience and he'll talk to you guys a little bit, but uh, they they don't want any kind of appearance of impropriety or favoritism. So you know he for the most part he he keeps his distance and that's understandable. So do you think he's more team blue in the gold, or is he more you know like Rex and Brown? Which, which sense did you get? I'm thinking uh, blue and gold. Yeah. Yeah, yeah probably. Yeah. All right. Yep. So 
given your trivia background, what what are you doing now with trivia? I'm a, a host for the Trivia Factory, which I'll plug again later, thetriviafactory.com. Uh, <laughs> and that, that means two nights a week I do live pub trivia in, here in town. And so I have a great uh, setup with those folks. You know, I usually get five or anywhere from five to ten teams, and that's anywhere from 50 to 60 players each venue all week. You know, so it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's 20-question format. People come out. Uh, they drink. They carouse. They have a... Uh, you know, they get to show off their knowledge a little bit, and uh, we ha- we all have a great time. So I've been doing uh, that about five years now. And if you get a chance in your local town to go out to a live trivia event, if you've got a if you've got a fun host and a great bunch of teams, you can have a really good time for for a couple hours. I've been out there a few times myself. I go more often, except I always go home in shame uh, in my <laughs> inability to answer more than like four questions. It's, yeah, you, it's you are you are not alone. And remember, it's not it's not individuals. It's about the team. <laughs> That sounds a little practiced, my friend. <laughs> no, no. Well, yes, yes. I have to say that because, you know, in that second half, people get kind of down in the dumps and like, hey, man, you know, anything can happen. And there's always that one person on the team that provides that little nugget, that little factoid that would uh, would make the difference between winning and losing for your whole team. So you never know. You know, uh, since we're sitting here talking about a, a humorous comic, one of my uh, – I find it humorous. You people at home might not. One of the things I always think back and laugh about is when you and I were in college together, we took a geography class together. Ah, <laughs> yeah. And we yeah. – Geography of USA and Canada, as I recall. And we were – forgive us, folks – typical, terrible college guys – and decided neither one of us wanted to buy the book because it was like a six-week summer course. So we decided each of us would try and date one of the girls in the class that already <laughs> owned one of the books and uh, study with the girls. And yes. I'm proud to say I beat you to the punch you there. Did. And did. I'm sad to say I beat you to the punch because that woman tore my heart out and <laughs> shredded it after about a year. Yes. So. We will not name names here, but hey, at least you passed the class. That's true. That's Silver true. lining. And that geometry class, a geography class, I should Sam, sorry, sort of guided your career, wouldn't you say? It did. It did. It was, you know, it was fun taking classes that summer. It was, you know, sort of a, we, we expected it to be a goof off kind of class, but I learned a lot and it really just sort of fanned the flames of what I had already in, enjoyed about geography with maps and everything. And that, that led definitely to my career choice. So that's, that's my day job is, is keeping geometry. Uh, ge- See, you got me doing it now, Shag. What are you doing? <laughs> geometry. I hate geometry. Yeah. Uh, doing geography each and every day is part of my career. So, you know, it, it's making a difference in people's lives and I, I love it. Awesome. People at home are probably getting bored with our reminiscing. I, I, I am already. But so why don't we go ahead and get to our in-stock trades recommendation, folks. This episode of the JLI podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Now, each episode will select a collected edition to briefly discuss from the InStockTrades library. Uh, usually, it's tied into that month's JLI issue in some way, shape, or form. And my pick is Showcase Presents Super Friends Trade Paperback. Volume 1, and this is the very first appearance of the Global Guardians. I almost said Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, The Global Guardians. (laughs) The Super Friends comic book was based on the TV series, but they really went a lot other directions. And this showcase edition collects the first 34 issues, and of course it's got Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman and Aquaman. also includes Flash, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, and uh, they battle things like the Riddler and Time Trapper, etc., etc. But the Global Guardians are introduced to that, and they will play a role in this very issue, ladies and gentlemen. So this trade is written by E. Nelson Bridwell, art by Rick Estrada and Ramona Fraden, cover art by Alex Toth. I mean, come on, it's probably worth it just for that. Page count 400. 
248 pages, black and white. Retail price $19.99, but you can get on in-stock trades right now for 50% off, only $9.99. Pat, did you happen to bring an in-stock trades recommendation? I did, but it's it's sadly not related to the DC Universe because uh, at the time, when I was really in my formative years, one of the comics that I loved around this time, 87, 88, was Marvel or Epic's Grew the Wanderer by Sergio Aragones, yes, and Mark Evanier. And uh, I, I that's what really kind of got me going. And going into in-stock trades, I see that sadly they don't have any of the really good collected works of the early issues or the, the Marvel issues. But they do, in the last few years, have started collecting the uh, Dark Horse and image informa- uh, issues together, mm-hmm. and uh, they've put them together into uh, volumes of three or four issues, and uh, the first one that I'm going to recommend today is uh, Grew the Wanderer Friends and Foes, Volume 1, in a collected trade paperback. It is from Dark Horse and written by Mark Evanier, and of course, fantastic art. Sergio Aragones has the reputation of being the most prolific artist on a page. He can fill it up in the shortest amount of time with thousands of of images and characters, he is really just an amazing artist. Of course, it's cartoony, but you know his his Mad Magazine street cred should should lead you down this road anyway. It's 112 pages. It is full color, and it is the collective works of little vignettes of all the different uh, supporting characters from Gru the Wanderer in his various stories, both in Dark Horse and Marvel. So it's a good jumping on point for new readers if you just want to see what a mindless barbarian is like and his wanderings around the amazing world created. By Sergio Aragones. Uh, $14.99 is the original price, but you can get it for $8.69. That's 42%. So Oof. definitely worth checking out. Yeah. Yeah, for this kind of work. And, and it is, it's not that far afield, though, because Sergio is known for doing so many fun things in Mad Magazine that are superhero related. I remember exactly. getting all kinds of mad collections when I was a kid, and he used to do little funny stuff in the margins, you know? And yeah, yeah. a bunch of them were Batman. And, you know, so it fits, it works. Yeah. I'll give it to Thanks, you. Thanks, man. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a cop-out, but whatever, man. Yeah. So anyway. Hey, for this, my life, man. <laughs> in more ways than I could possibly name. <laughs> uh, for, for this and your other trade paperback needs, folks, please visit InStockTrades.com. Now, as we're going through this issue, because we are going to be talking about Justice League International number eight, and if you don't know your issue numbers, folks, get ready to drop your jaw and hit the floor. It is moving day. Oh, yeah. This issue is beloved. This is right up there with one punch. <laughs> As, as one of the most popular issues. So, as you share your thoughts on this issue, please, on the social medias, use our hashtag PoundFWPodcasts. You can also, on Twitter, hit us up at, uh, you know, the at symbol JLI podcast, or on Facebook, you can tag us as Justice League International Blahaha Podcast. We would love to hear from you guys, because one of the biggest things we're trying to do here is really build a community of JLI fans around this show. And uh, we want to interact with you. We want you guys to be part of it. And when I do the feedback later on the show, you'll see just how involved everyone can get. Have you trademarked those hashtags, by the way? No, no. I'm just curious. Okay, because they just rattle off your tongue. It's just, that's that's a true brand name right there. That's amazing. My wife says I say those things in my sleep, but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) All right, folks, now we get to probably the most boring part of the show, which is Pat's going to talk some more, because, you know, it didn't happen enough early on. Um, Mr. Pence, could you please tell us your own personal origin story with the JLI? How did you discover the book, and why did you fall in love with it? Well, first of all, Mr. Pence is, of course, my dad. <laughs> uh, so, as long as we're talking about me, however, yeah, just to give you, uh, you know, just sort of the quick capsule review of, of how I discovered the JLI. I was in scouting, you know, for many of 
you out there. Hopefully, uh, if if you have that kind of experience in the background too, then you you know that uh, you spend a lot of time on uh, camping trips and summer camp and things like that. And I just remember working summer camp staff in in 1987, and uh, one of my cabin mates he he was a big comic fan, and he had Justice League issue number seven, of course, as you guys discussed last month in in the Bwahaha podcast, and it's got that fantastic cover of all the sort of the silhouettes and the profiles of all the new Justice League members uh, after getting that United Nations sanction. So With those dead, dead eyes. <laughs> dead eyes. Yes, the zombie JLI, of course. But what struck me, of course, coming back to that whole geography thing, was the flags of the nations back there. And that really struck a chord. I'm like, what's this all about? And I realized, oh my gosh, it's issue seven. They've rebooted the Justice League. How have I missed this? And of course, that was attractive enough that I, I asked him and he let me read it and I, and I thumbed through it. And then that, that just kind of stuck in my brain back there. And uh, I remember sort of uh, having a really close friend of mine, Peter. I mean, you know Peter. Oh, uh, Peter. He, yes, the man. Uh, he he being the, the comic expert in my life at that time in scouting and, and just knowing him on a personal level, he uh, he loaned me his copy of New Beginnings. I think the trade had just come out in, in uh, say, early 89, if I recall. That was the first mm-hmm. time they collected those. And, yeah, I, I read through it, and that brought me up to speed of issues one through seven. And I was just hooked. I couldn't, you know, he, he started lo- loaning me his uh, individual issues, the floppies, I guess, as the kids oh, call them now. <laughs> on the streets, on the mean streets, uh, they say these were bad rights. Right. He was loaning them to me, and guess by 89, we were up into the mid-20s, and that was just incredible. You know, of course, I was, it was sad to see the end of the McGuire uh, era, and uh, but then sort of the... Uh, what really struck a chord with me on the next time was the, the Adam Hughes covers when he started, and that was just this incredible, you know, foreshadowing for the future podcast. Of course, when the when the Adam Hughes, Hughes covers come into play, that is just a sight to behold in more ways than one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, did, did the covers so, of Fire make you feel funny? Oh, climbing the, ju- the rope and Island class? life. Oh, it's right there, baby. But uh, you, you come for the covers and you stay for the bwahahas, I guess, is really sort of the, the way I thought of it. And then, you know, right about that time, I was getting ready to pack up and go off to college. And uh, I, I had a pull file and I was getting all the issues at that time. And, and that summer just was so memorable because I came up here and I had to, you know, bring all my JLI issues with me. And we had just finished the Teasdale Imperative. So that was, yeah, it was a really good time. And, of course, all of that was right after the summer of the bat. And so comic books were just forefront in my life again at that time it was really a really good time to to be reading comics and enjoying all this new stuff to me and as you moved into town our town has never been the same <laughs> oh, that's right <laughs> now one of the things i remember was you sir in the first place i ever saw it was at your place you had framed the class of 87 poster isn't that right Yes, I do. It's still one of my prized possessions. I'm looking at it right now. Funny story behind that. This was, you know, one of those sort of serendipity moments with comic fans out there. Uh, we used to have, well, first of all, this is going back to like 80, 1989, that summer again. And Peter and I happened to be going to our local Holiday Inn, which was having a comic <laughs> convention. I think they had two every year. And it was nice because a lot of the, the comic artists that we so revere just happened to be there either officially or because they were summering in, in Florida. I remember Walt Simonson used to be there a lot Ooh. with his wife. Yeah. Awesome. 
So they were just kind of the average Joes there, and we were just looking at some stuff, and uh, there was – I can't remember who the featured artist was that was doing prints and signing, but it was real low-key. You know, there's there's not a lot of people there, so there's hardly any lines, and and uh, we just happened to be walking and talking to, to one of the artists, and we noticed this guy sitting sort of in the back just behind the table. He had his feet up. And, uh, you know, he's kind of blondish, and he had this little mustache, and, you know, kind of nondescript. And my friend Peter, he, he hits me in the elbow, and he goes, you know who that is? I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know artists. I don't. And he said, that's Kevin McGuire. I'm like, really? Cool. Who's Kevin McGuire? And he goes, you know, he smacked me upside the head. He's like, Just League, man. I'm like, oh, okay. And so we had walked past a vendor who had the class of 87 posters oh. kind of rolled up, and we didn't think anything of it. And we immediately went back and sure enough snapped up the last two that he had. And we walked up to, uh, you know, and we kind of motioned Kevin over, and he came up, and we said, hey. He goes, yeah. He goes, aren't you Kevin McGuire? And he goes, and I think he was just thrilled that somebody could identify him out of a, you know, a police lineup. And he's like, yeah, yeah. And so, of course, Peter being a, a an art student, he was really interested in comic book art, and he wanted to be a comic book artist. They immediately just kind of started just talking shop. And then, you know, I'm sitting there off the side, and, and, he, and we asked, hey, we've, hey, we've got these. Would you mind signing them for us? He's like, absolutely. And, you know, and he signed them for us. And he just, I think he left on a cloud knowing that somebody could talk to him. And this is this is actually when he was working. I guess uh, he was transitioning over to the Marvel side of the things. He was uh, was he working like Captain working America, on? probably Captain America, right? Yes, that's what I thought it was. And so we left there with new treasures, and I got mine framed and mounted. And it's just a it's one of my prized possessions now. That's that's on the list of things that are grabbed when the house is burning. So. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It was. I was a really, and it was just one of those formative moments in comics for me. Getting that poster is on my bucket list. I uh, just recently framed my promotional poster from issue number one, the one that's kind of the cover shot of issue number one. Oh right, and it says, right. You know, we're tough. We're proud. We're the all new Justice League, all new Adventures, all new team. And I just got that recently framed. But uh, man, the class of '87. Someday, man. Someday. Oh yeah, yeah. You got the guy Gardner sort of doing his thing with his ring. I guess it's supposed to be probably like a you know sound of the devil. Yeah, rock, hard rock. But it's really the it's the love symbol. So you know that's interesting for guy. Well, when he drew that. That the guy would have been well. Would he have been in the? He would have been in the unstable period. Like, yeah, because it was, yeah, it's either Captain Adams there. So, well, it's class of '87. Oh, '87. So oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So that is so after he got the bonk on the head. So maybe, yeah. it maybe this supposed to be love instead of like a. Well, but he's got a sneer on his face, so he's he's really full of himself. So it's probably right in that that period, right before the mouse. Yeah. I don't know. Well, That's, we're going to talk about in this episode that guy isn't as vapid as I remember him being uh, during this period. So we'll get to that in a bit. But yeah, it's a great poster. Absolutely beautiful. And if you want to see the image, there is a, a recolored version of it on our Facebook page. If you go to, again, Justice League International Waha Podcast at Facebook, the banner across the top is that image. Someone took the original art, recolored it. I did some more color touch-ups on it, and that is our top banner. And that's the same artwork, at least. And uh, you can see it there. It's absolutely gorgeous. So, Pat... As I ask everyone, who are your favorite JLI characters? Try to narrow it down somewhere between one to three, sir. 
Well, uh, of course, as we just said, uh, I love I love me some Guy Gardner, and Which explains uh, a lot about yeah. Our he is he is everyone's favorite misanthrope. I mean, come on, <laughs> look look at you've got Guy Gardner before Legends. Who what? Oh, he's a yeah okay. He's a was he a gym teacher who gets to be a, a Green Lantern. Interesting, I guess. And then then all of a sudden Legends comes along, and lo and behold, he's tapped to be the new Green Lantern for Earth, right? And it's like how who, and it took <laughs> it took Giffen and Demetrius to to really flesh him out. And I mean, just from that first dim, uh, issue of him sitting at the table, silhouetted in darkness, saying that he was going to be the new leader of the Justice League, how could you not love that, right? <laughs> well, you know, the, ap- the apocryphal story was Steve Englehart was writing Green Lantern Corps at the time, and he couldn't think of anything to do with Guy. So when they wanted him for Justice League, he's like, fine, take him. I don't want him. And then right. they did such an amazing job with him that he wanted Guy Gardner back. And they're like, nope, ain't happening. <laughs> no, no, yeah. So there's the new cash cow, right? Mm-hmm. Not that he ever became any, you know, one of the, the primary DC, but he, he is memorable. He's he's part of the 1980s in the Justice League and, and just everything that we associate with the Bwahaha period would not be the same without the antagonism of Guy Gardner. Totally. And, and I would argue that his 44, issue, I think that's right, 44 issue ongoing series he had, was a direct result of what they did for him here. Right. I think that that series, while it's fun in certain periods, and some of the eras like Bo Smith stuff is amazing, it wouldn't have happened if they hadn't turned him into a star here. Yeah, yeah, and 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 the way that they take it and just make him more than just sort of the 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 antagonist, of course, and and giving him sort of a, a proto love interest, and that he does have sort of feelings and and he can have empathy for other characters in the league. Yeah, I mean they really fleshed him out, and and so you know how can you not love the guy, right? Oh, nice, Aww. well played, well <laughs> Thank played. You. I am nothing if not punny. Ugh. Uh, Who else you got? Oddly enough, I don't I really don't like the Green Lantern as as a as a character and the whole core is just kind of like, eh, you know, I'm just I'm not a fan of the cosmic side of the DC universe. However, the other So you're saying you like uh, Ryan Reynolds better in red than in green? Oh, yeah, I guess, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's right. Give me Deadpool any day. Yeah, the the other character I love that came out of the Justice League International period was Norton Eesmacher, you know? <laughs> Yes, the really? the unlikely backup, you know, <laughs> Green Lantern to to fill the ranks. You know, he 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 just proves that nepotism is everywhere. <laughs> and if, if you got an uncle, you get a ringy dingy. You know. <laughs> So he was just yeah, – he was so uh, – you know, he was just c- comedic in the fact that you couldn't really identify, one, what he was, who he was, and how intelligent he was. But, you know, you, you give a ring to a to something, and you see what he can do with it. So whenever he would pop back up, I loved that those times. Yeah, again, don't really care for the Green Lantern, but the individual Green Lanterns like Kilowog and Nort and Guy are just really interesting to read. Best description I've heard for Nort. I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure it came from Mike Gillis, if I remember. And if not, we're just going to attribute it to him and steal it from whoever else might have said it. Is that Nort is a Jar Jar Binks that works? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so trivia question, Master Uh-oh. of Trivia has to yes. What is Nort's middle name? And I know everybody in the audience is immediately going off to Wikipedia or something. Uh, I'm not even going to do that. I'm just going to look at the Google Doc that we're sharing, and you've already <laughs> typed it out for me. <laughs> But I don't well, know how I, to pronounce I, it. <laughs> I thought it was interesting because it's it's Esplanade. Yes. You know, which is which is a you know, a fairly up 
crust kind of name, but it also it's the name of a, a road that we have here in town. So you know how how could you not know that? <laughs> oh, I, t- I totally knew that. I, if you hadn't had it written down here, it would have been right on the tip of my tongue. I would have absolutely uh, known that. Of course, of even, course. I didn't even know his last name was Niemacher. <laughs> Niemacher, yeah. Uh, and right. of course, even though I'm, I'm I, I've given you two, the the third one is really just the amalgam of of blue and gold. It's you know Blue Beetle, Booster Gold, how they were presented as the comic foils during you know the first thirty five, forty. Well, essentially up to you know the whole. 60 issue run the way we see them come together as complete individuals and are brought together as a team you can't have one with the other and we're going to talk more about that in this issue of course but you know they're brought together for their love their joint love of wine women and song and um you know after that it's all misadventures and wisecracks and and how can you not love them Everyone does. They get brought up almost by everybody. And just to know for future guests, I'm not sure how math works where you are, but blue and gold is two, not one. <laughs> so I'm just saying, if I say one to three and you one give me three. four, I'm going to question you know, your ability to bet in I, Jeopardy how much you're going to bet. Oh, low blow, but I'm a fan <laughs> of fuzzy math, okay? <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. All right, well, we're, we're going to move on, and because I'm sick of hearing Pat talk, I'm going to do most of the talking here as we move on. To monitor duty, and this is where we talk about other comics on the shelves that same month as this issue that featured JLI members. So this issue went on sale on September eighth, nineteen eighty seven, and thanks to Mike's Amazing World of Comics for that information. So other titles featuring JLI members that were on the shelf in September nineteen eighty seven are including. Well, this is it, folks. This is this is a big thing. You know, we've got the this issue is the moving day. This issue is the start of the Boahaha. And that same month, another watershed moment in DC history, Millennium, began. Woof, man. Okay. Uh, you, you keep saying watershed. I, I I don't think it means what you think it means about this one. <laughs> Yes, Millennium Issues 1 through 3 were on the shelf in September. That's because they cranked an issue out every week because they figured if they could get eight out before anyone really finished reading them, people have bought them before it's over. Uh, anyway, by Steve Englehart and Joe Staten. Oof, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of not love out there for Millennium, but we will talk about it on future episodes of this show. Then, uh, also, keeping in the same theme of teams, because the JLI appears a hold in Millennium. Then in Action Comics number 595, we got to see another JLI appearance of the whole team, and that's by John Byrne. This features Superman and Martian Manhunter versus Silver Banshee. For more on Superman, check out the From Crisis to Crisis podcast, which our friend Michael Bailey is one of the hosts on. He's a previous guest on this show. And for more on Martian Manhunter, you can check out Idlehead of Diablo, which our friend Diablo Frank, you know, again, I use the term loosely, also appeared on this show. Then, uh, same, again, still going in September, still featuring the entire JLI, was Blue Beetle, shipped twice this month by Len Wein and Ross Andrew, in issues number 19 and 20. 19 was Beetle versus the Star Labs computer, but issue 20, Ted Cord, lucky him, got to enter Millennium, and he battled Catalyst, and the JLI makes an appearance. Clearly, DC Comics recognized that there was money to be made when you put the JLI in your book, because they did it a whole bunch this month. So, uh, for more info Blue Beetle, please check out the Cord Industries blog, which is run by our buddy Tim Wallace. Also appeared previously on this show. You see the synergy here? It's real. Smart. Wow, you've had you've had everybody shag. <laughs> and now we're digging the bottom of the barrel already on episode eight. Just some guy I know who lives in my backyard. Yep. Um, then Green Lantern Core number two twenty by Steve Englehart and Bill Willingham. The JLI makes another appearance as Millennium comes home to roost. 
For more on the GL Corps, be sure to check out the Lantern Cast podcast by our buddy Chad Bogleman. And then Secret Origins number 22 by Roy and Danette Thomas and Howard Simpson featured the origin of the Manhunters, which was critical to the Millennium storyline, and that featured tons of cameos of the JLI in there. And you can find that over uh, covered over in the Secret Origins podcast by our buddy Ryan Daly, also a previous guest on this podcast. Now, for current members of the JLI, we're going to run through these as quick as we can. Batman, shipped twice this month, Batman 414 and 415 by Jim Starlin and Jim Aparo. In the first one, Batman befriends a social worker and hunts down a killer. In the next one, Batman enters Millennium as Commissioner Gordon attacks the Cape Crusader. Dun, dun, dun. Detective Comics number 581 was on the shelves by Mike W. Barr and Jim ba- Bakey. I think it's how you say it, or Bakey. It was Batman versus multiple Two-Faces. And then in Outsiders, you know, it kind of blows my mind to think that Batman, and I've said this before, but that Batman was in the JLI and he was in the Outsiders at the same time. And yet, if you read these JLI comics, you would never, ever know that he was in the Outsiders. He, oh, yeah. He he was very busy, but he has a private side. I guess so. He's a little like Wolverine. He's, he's all over the place. <laughs> So Outsiders, uh, number 26 by Mike Barron and Jim Aparo, was a Geoforce story with a little bit of Batman. And then Batman, Son of the Demon, Hardcore, oh, was on the shelves. Wow, I need a moment. I need a moment. Well, that's a big one. By Mike <laughs> oh, wow. W. Barr and Jerry Bingham. And to be fair, nothing really of significance ever came out of this storyline. Nope, not yeah. a thing. I hate that little turd, Damien. Um, and then, uh, let's see. For more great Batman stuff, please check out the BatmanUniverse.net. Tons of great Batman podcasts over there. Then Booster Gold shipped twice this month by Dan Jurgens. Booster Gold number 23, where his battle with Superman continues. And then Booster Gold number 24, Booster versus his own mansion. And the Manhunters have planted an agent close to Booster. And I think it was 25 or 24. It was 20, I thought it was 24. I thought it was two full years, didn't it? Well, I, either, I don't recall. Either 24 or 25 is the last issue. So it's, it's yeah. round in the end here. So this is the point where JLI can do whatever they want with Booster, pretty much. And for more Booster Gold chocolatey goodness, check out the Silver and Gold podcast, and then check out Boosterific.com. Then Captain Adam number 10. Oddly enough, Captain Adam doesn't actually appear in that issue, number 10. It does say that on the cover. Fair enough, though. However, the story does follow everyone's favorite scientist in a wheelchair. That'd be Dr. Megala. Oh, wait. I forgot about Professor X. Um, mm. kind of forgot about Doom Patrol's chief. Okay, maybe it's, Awkward. N- maybe it's not everyone's favorite scientist in a wheelchair, but, you know, whatever. Uh, for more information on Captain Adam, again, check out the Silver and Gold podcast. Then a little book called Firestorm the Nuclear Man. Aww. Who's that? I've heard of that guy. Uh, what? Issue number- whatever happened to that guy? Not much. Something about his head's on fire. Number 67 by John Ostrander and Joe Brzezowski. Unfortunately, Millennium has caught up with Firestorm. Poor guy. And he mixes up with a few other heroes, including some JLI members. Then he faces his own personal Manhunter sleeper agent. Dun-dun-dun. For more on Firestorm, check out a podcast I've never heard of called Aquaman and Firestorm, the Fire and Water Podcast. Then on The Flash, number eight, by Mike Barron and Jackson Geis, Wally West Flash is dragged into Millennium, and he bumps into some JLI members, and he has to deal with the red and blue trinities. For more on The Flash, check out the speedforce.org, the Flash Legacies podcast, or the Flash podcast, which is about the TV series. Let's see, Who's Who Update 87 featured the Rocket Red Brigade. For more on Who's Who, check out a podcast, another one I've never heard of, called the Who's Who Podcast, right here on this network. And finally, future members of the team, Hawkman, number 17, was on the shelves by Dan Mishkin and Ed Hannigan, and there, Hawkman has to deal with a hurricane and gentleman ghosts. As someone Mm. who lives in Florida, hurricanes play a special interest in our lives. And gentleman ghosts. Right! (laughs) Exactly! (laughs) For more on Hawkman, check out the Bean Carter Hall blog and the Hawkman Companion, which was written by our guest last episode, Doug Zwisha. Wow, I am behind on my podcast listening. The 
there are so many out there. I got to start catching up. Yes, you do. And you know what? I'm going to take a podcast promo break right here, so where we can play a couple of commercials for some of our friends. You can hear those, Pat. Go out and listen to those, and maybe if you're nice, I'll let you back in the embassy to finish talking about this comic. God bless you. <laughs> Adolescents this generation have no respect and are a far cry from my sweet Jane Eyre and her friend Helen Burns. Why, just this afternoon I was Stella. walking across and, and you know what? Men too. Well, uh, uh, Stella. Men like the tragic Mr. Rochester and teachers, pa, they're all like the villainous Mr. Brocklehurst. Hey, Stella! Uh, yes, Thomas? As much as I enjoy um, indulging your insanity, we have a promo to record. Oh dear, and what might that be? That is you and I telling everyone that we have a brand new podcast out there. It's called Required Reading with Tom and Stella. Once a month, we will take a look at a single work of literature, discuss it, analyze it, and determine if it's worth its place in the canon. Oh dear, that sounds delightful. Oh, I'm sure it will be. And you can find us on the Two True Freaks Network, which is at twotruefreaks.com. Oh yes, required reading with with Tom and... Why is it Tom and Stella? Why can't it be Stella and Tom? It rolls off the tongue better? Okay. Well, that was easy. So, required reading with Tom and Stella at twotruefreaks.com. Thanks for contributing to the promo there. You did a great job. Oh, you are so welcome. So are we going to be working together? Really? Worst film you ever saw. Well, my next one will be better. It's the Film and Water Podcast. The Film and Water Podcast covers movies new and old, classic, and uh, not-so-classic. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, available weekly on fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. And we're back, folks. Now, before we get rolling here and start covering Justice League International number 8, just want to remind you that we will post several pages and panels from this issue on our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com. Just go up to the Shows tab and look for JLI. You will find a post that says something along the lines of JLI Podcast number 8 gallery and you'll see lots of the images there in case you don't have the issue handy or maybe you know your parents basement flooded when you were 16 years old and you lost the issue because you know quite frankly you're just pathetic and won't go out and buy a new one so i'm sorry to hear that anyway you can go out there and see the images on our website and enjoy all the good wahaha moments i thought we were going to keep that story to ourselves shag uh well you know ironically you are one of the people who knows about the flood i had yes <laughs> which i was there you helped me um you know i think i still have some of your quilts from when we try to dry the carpet but anyway 
So we are covering Justice League International number eight from DC Comics, cover dated December 1987, cover price 75 cents, three shiny quarters. Oh my gosh, I would love to buy a comic for three for 75 cents. And a uh, cover by Kevin McGuire and Al Gordon. Pat, why don't you tell the folks at home about this cover? Well, I am looking at it right now. I, I love reading these, rereading these on my Kindle. It's, it's very easy to do. And yeah, this this cover is one of the great first introductions, at least I consider the first introduction of the humorous side of the Justice League because uh, you know they've gone out of their way to sort of exploit that that new relationship between Blue Beetle and, and Booster Gold, and we have all that uh, wonderful Booster Gold collar, fine fine collar. <laughs> I call it the Frank Langella collar. But uh, we, you know, I call this the first mission of Blue and Gold because you know they're sitting there trying to hoist the items into the new embassy. Although now it's probably a, maybe a little misogynistic where they've got sort of the stereotype of Black Canary being indecisive on, well, where should I have them put this? And uh, they're, they're straining. But I, I love the little nuances of like the this side up, the fragile about the fall, you know, <laughs> having the box completely upside down. So uh, it is it is just perfect, a perfect sort of theme set up for this issue with, that we're going to see with all these little vignettes. And Kevin McGuire's body language is great. I mean, you can see clearly Booster and Beetle are really straining to carry this box. It is really killing them. We are at hernia level right now. (laughs) And Black Canary is standing there. Now, she's wearing the Jazzercise costume, which so many people complain about that I will still stand by. I think it's sexy. I I love it, too. I love it, too. With so many simple lines here, he makes her look beautiful and sexy and powerful at the same time. I I love it. Yes, as you said, it is misogynist uh, or sexist or whatever the right (laughs) – Being irredeemable, I don't know what these words mean. But anyway, (laughs) where she's going, "Hmm, maybe over there, which is still hilarious. I don't care. And The the two things about this cover that that beg the question, one, are there actual Oreos in that crate? (laughs) (laughs) Inquiring minds want to know. And two, doesn't doesn't Booster have the ability to, like, you know, manipulate matter and gravity with his power? Good point. He does have, like, the force field stuff, and I think he's super strong. Yeah. So that's funny. Humorous nonetheless. Yeah. Well, it's sort of like covered in number five where Captain Marvel and Martian Manhunter are straining to hold back Guy Gardner, which makes no sense, truthfully, because they're both crazy strong. But it just makes for a great cover. And now Kevin McGuire has continued something he's done with almost all the covers, which is a very simple background. In this case, it's just an orange uh, sort of gradient uh, Mm -hmm. on the background, and it makes the art pop off the page rather than filling the background with sort of unnecessary little things, which I prefer in the interiors. I want the backgrounds filled up, but on a cover, it's just it's the way to go. It just makes. And, and speaking of that, that kind of pop, the the expression on on Blue Beetle's face is is he is he like really just about to die from exertion, or is he is he just about to explode in anger at Black Canary? With his, <laughs> <laughs> Considering what we find out later about Ted's heart condition, this this may have been a pretty dangerous mission for him. Actually, this is true. Yeah. <laughs> All right, getting into the issue, folks. It is Plot and Breakdown by Keith Giffen, script by J.M.D. Mateus, pencils by Kevin McGuire, inks by Al Gordon, letters by Bob Lappin, colors Gene D'Angelo, editor Andy Helfer. They have kept the team together. There is no changes from the team from last issue. Happy to hear it. Now, this issue is a little bit different in that it's split into two stories. The first story is called Moving Day, uh, which is, takes up the first 17 pages of the story. The rest of the comic is called Old News, which Pat will talk about when we get on the back end, because quite frankly, he was too lazy to take the first half of the recap. So. 
This is true, yes. All right, we open the issue with a newscast from everyone's favorite sensationalist pain-in-the-butt Jack Ryder. He gets the reader back up to speed, recapping how the Justice League has recently earned international status from the United Nations. The newly christened Justice League International are preparing several JLI embassies around the world, including one in New York City. Now, outside the embassy in the Big Apple, we see the movers are unloading equipment, presumably brought from their Justice League's previous secret sanctuary headquarters, and McGuire takes time to draw one particular onlooker who's talking directly to the camera. You can't help but notice this guy. He's just a regular guy with glasses and a beard, but for some reason he stands off the page, and we'll talk more about that later. Now, inside the New York embassy, Jean is supervising the movers, and one of the movers asks about a particular crate that is labeled... Oreos. This leads John to admit that he likes Oreos and goes on to make some rather pithy comments, pretty funny ones actually, teasing the movers about McDonald's and Burger King. The movers are bemoaning how they're going to get this heavy crate up the flight of stairs when John just takes matters into his own hands. With another crack about the benefit of Oreos, he hoists the crate over his head using his Martian strength and starts to walk up the stairs. Well, it turns out this building isn't exactly in peak condition. In fact, throughout the issue, we find out that the building suffers from significant construction problems. As John climbs the stairs, is not able to support his his weight along with the heavy crate jean's foot goes right through the weak step and he crashes downwards into the basement as jean comes crashing down he lands next to mr miracle and captain adam who are both working in the basement on the security system jean tries to play it off and play it cool and simply cracks another joke and he heads back upstairs and mr miracle and captain adam are working as i said on the security system and captain adam decides to be quote-unquote helpful in the kind of way that nobody ever wants and adam connects a couple of dangling wires giving himself a huge electrical jolt and on instinct, he reacts, and he launches an attack on the electrical system, blasting it and frying it with his quantum energy blast. Mr. Miracle is outraged, because his work has been completely destroyed, eight hours of his life completely wasted, and through the hole in the ceiling, or the steps, whichever way you want to look at it, John looks down and asks uh, about the explosion and asks if they're under attack. Mr. Miracle says, in a manner of speaking, and he storms out. And the problems continue as the power of the entire building goes out. Meanwhile, Batman, Guy Gardner, and Rocket Red Number 7 have been assigned to activate the Moscow Embassy. The Soviets are understandably nervous about Guy Gardner being there, considering his history of attacks on Russian soil. However, this is the more sensitive guy, who's more worried about what the Russians think of him. Well, Rocket Red Number 7 intervenes on Guy's behalf, and they go into the embassy. Now, the Moscow embassy, turns out, is in great condition. In fact, it's quite the opposite of the New York embassy. The workers are bragging that the Russian construction will last long enough, not only for them, but for their great-grandchildren to use the embassy. And Batman asks Guy to sweep the embassy for bugs. And I, I don't mean, like, insects, but, like, you know, the listening devices. And uh, he reveals that he has found quite a few already. Now, the guy's really bothered by this, but they decide to keep it a secret from their newest teammate, Rocket Red Number 7. Then we meet the bureau chief of the Moscow embassy, Dmitrovich Razumuhin. <clears throat> yeah, I just murdered that. But anyway, uh, his insistence on punctuality borders on psychotic threatening his driver. And to be fair, it, it is rather hilarious. But when Batman meets Dmitriev, he, uh, the Dark Knight shows him his displeasure at finding the bugs in the embassy. And Dmitrievich is obviously embarrassed and tries to downplay it. And starting on page 12, in the second half, we get abbreviated sort of vignettes for immediate few days and weeks that right after the JLI is sanctioned by the United Nations. The first big scene that we get is Scott Free, Mr. Miracle, being provided the sponsored new JLI shuttle by Star Labs. Mm -hmm. And yeah, yeah, the, the look on his face when he sees it is that classic McGuire facial detail. He is a kid at Christmas, <laughs> and, and the wow is just punctuation on a beautiful scene. At the same time, we see Booster and Beetle in Paris, Gay Paris, sitting at a sidewalk cafe, 
awaiting a meeting with the new French bureau chief. And their first impression, or my first impression of this scene is, Ted Cord has red hair? What? <laughs> did, did somebody not talk to the colorist? But their discussion of uh, what Black Canary is doing and uh, in, in their absence is one of those things where it's bordering on, you know, sexism again. But hey, this is the 80s, so we kind of play it off with a laugh. But they both know that they're in deep, deep trouble if they figure out or if she figures out that they're gone. But uh, then they, they change that conversation to the availability of the French women in Paris. And that takes it on to Booster Gold for how he is going to make his play. And uh, <laughs> we we get a scene where there's a setup and sort of a competition begins where Ted sort of eggs on Booster and says, go for it. And then the very next cut scene is the failure. And this, this is those one of the seminal moments in all of comics. We start to see the explosive ha-ha-ha. First we see the ha-ha-ha, and then it, of course, evolves later on into uh, later when they get back into the, the embassy itself. But watching Booster crash and burn gives us this first opportunity to see Ted Cord give us the boah-ha-ha moment that we've come to know and lo- love for this whole period of the Justice League. And that's on uh, page 14, panel 8. And, of course, it becomes the go-to gag. I mean, when they need it, they use it. And so they re- hence the name of this podcast. Exactly. You're, you, <laughs> Shag, you should be on your hands and knees thanking them for that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Booster's failure is your moment. Uh, upon returning to the embassy, however, the boys have to, in fact, face that wrath of Black Canary, as they expected, because she is not pleased, and she keeps wondering why Ted, or Blue Beetle, is exploding with laughter as he tries to regale the failure of Booster Gold. Then we get a moment where they separate, and this is the first introduction we get of the actual French bureau chief in name, Catherine Colbert, and we'll see her later on in, in several different Justice League uh, issues. But, uh, Chad, you want to comment on this one? Uh, you looking for me to say she's hot? Well, you know, like I said. (laughs) Now, talk about sexist behavior. This is me being completely sexist. I had the biggest crush, and I realized recently I still do, on Catherine Colbert. Not only is she smart, she's strong-willed, she's brilliant, actually, and she's smoking hot. (laughs) And we get the opportunity to just, you know, I love when when they write in the style of a dialect, you know, with the Z's and the welcome to France and that kind of stuff. It just jumps off the page at you. And then after that, you know, we get to see the embarrassment of Booster running into her in the embassy again and realizing that, oh boy, I have made a huge mistake. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, our third and final vignette that leads us, uh, the JLI is anticipating the arrival of that shiny new star shuttle. And Scott's going to, or Mr. Miracle's going to attempt to land it on the embassy roof. And as we alluded to earlier, the structural integrity of that roof is commented on by some of the movers and the workmen in the place. And... (laughs) Much to the uh, chagrin of everybody involved and the viewing public outside, that shuttle goes right through the roof because the engineering standards of that building will not hold that kind of technology. So after crashing, Scott is embarrassed to be stripped of his piloting duties by John, or John, (laughs) as you call him. And so we get to see that look of horror when he is like, oh, I too have made a huge mistake. That leads into sort of the group standing there in the parlor, and we get Oberon running in and saying, fellas, fellas, and that that is your hook into millennium number one that brings us to the end of this storyline and it's a good transition he comes running in and says hey we got to go and take 
on whatever foe. I think he says, Germany, that's in Europe. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Geography. Of course. But I love that he goes, fellas, and of course there's that fellas, you know, moment where I think Black Canary is the one that calls him out on that. Uh, and we get the fine little nyuck, 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 which just, just solidifies Ted's role as the Blue Beetle of humor in this storyline. So he's admonished by Martian Manhunter, and of course the follow-up crack is, hey, he's only been in charge for two weeks, now he's acting like Batman. I heard that. <laughs> <laughs> and then we, uh, after they abruptly lead us into the Millennium Hook, uh, we get the little side storyline, and it's, it is different artwork, of course. It's not Kevin McGuire. It is Giffen doing the pencils on this one. It's called Old News, and we get to see sort of the same, you know, meanwhile, at the Dome, we get the Global Guardians kind of shutting down operations as they have lost their, I guess, United Nations charter in lieu of the new Justice League status. So we see their uh, databases are being transferred and expunged of the different characters like Tasmanian Devil, and we get some comments and discussions between, you know, the the, the members who are none too pleased about losing their status. We get uh, a little little attitude by Jack O'Lantern. Really? Come on, he's the Irish guy. His his his. I mean, really? Shack O'Lantern? It was the side- 70s. Oh, his sidekick must be patio furniture, right? Really? Oh, my gosh. Uh, we got Belphegor, Dr. Mist, and Tua. Is it Tuatara? Because I was never really a uh, Global Guardians That's, fan. I so. think how you say it. I think yeah, so. Tuara, yeah. And then we get sort of that last, hey, where do I get my parking validated? And then you could almost just stop it like a 1970s sitcom where they're all just laughing still in a tableau. Uh, <laughs> validated <laughs> yeah so that's where we end the issue uh, we get you know 17 pages of, of good Justice League meat and then about 5 pages of meanwhile well and, and it's fair to say too in that story the, the one of the big key moments is Jack O'Lantern has had enough and he is so distraught by the dome being shut down, he actually attacks Dr. Mist. And right. that's foreshadowing because Jack O'Lantern will, as, as goofy as he is, become a major foe for the Justice League in future issues. So a little bit of foreshadowing there. Uh, he flies off in a huff, you know, I'll get you guys, that kind of thing. To be continued. And then the last page is the, what would normally be the letters page, but instead of any letters, it just has a cover of next issue where it shows Rocket Red number 7 hoisting Martian Manhunter over his head. I wonder uh-huh. what that could possibly mean yes did you did you notice in this issue you didn't see a face you just saw a red kind of screen shield on that yep. rocket red yep. interesting hmm wonder what it could all mean i don't know guess we'll find out next issue with the manhunter millennium crossover Ooh. <laughs> all right well pat what'd you think of the issue like you were saying early on this is a this is a touchstone because they've taken the new beginning they've set up all the characters as as the individual protagonists and now we get to see where they're going to go in the DC universe. And I think this is a really good transition point directly into Millennium, although, you know, like we were saying earlier, Millennium is a bit of a dog. Whether it was intended or not, just having this crossover right now immediately upon getting their sanctioning, they are just put right into action. And it's it's quite the tonal change from the first seven issues, which is sort of with the Gray Man storyline and the booster proving himself. They were They're thrusting them right into what I call the significance of the JLI beyond Earth. Mm. Um, I th- we're going to see that coming back more and more, obviously, with the Millennium storyline and what will eventually become of, you know, the arrival of Manga Khan and the, the constant storyline with Scott Free and, and uh, New Genesis and Apocalypse. So we, we get to see that they're kind of taking the Justice League back into what I call the cosmic DC universe. I'm not a huge fan of that. 
that. But, you know, that that was a big part of the upcoming storylines. So this was a good transition to get us ready for those. And, and I think what's interesting is being the transition issue, this is the this is the I don't want to call it a talky talk issue, but there's no fighting. There's no bad guys. There's right. no I mean, there are certainly, you know, challenges that they have to overcome you know, in the way you structure a story and that all works. But it, there's nobody to fight. They just are dealing with each other. They're getting on each other's nerves. I mean, the workplace comedy is yeah. in full flow here. Oh, yeah. Everyone, I think, kind of says that the early issues of Justice League, people tend to think the early issues of Justice League weren't as funny. I think through this podcast, we've proven that the early issues of Justice League are very funny. But this is the point where everything has come together. This yeah. issue, everything gels, and it's just full steam ahead going on from here on. Exactly. And, and, and I think this sets the stage for what we would consider all of the, the, the blahaha moments for the next 20 or 25 issues because we get all of the little humorous asides and the oops did, you know, if you, if you want to think of it as an Urkel moment when, you know, when Mr. Miracle crashes, oh, did I do that? You know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> so the, the, the comic timing really shines between the, the Giffen and DiMatteis writing, you know, where they set up a joke and then they throw a little zinger in there and it's just, it's music. Music, really, it's comedic music to watch. I love the part with them when he crashes the ship on, on the roof. Because, I mean, it, of course the superheroes are going to park their plane on the roof of the building. That's of how course. it works, right? Yeah, it's New York. Exactly. <laughs> That's what you to do. It just makes perfect sense. So to take that to the next step is just hysterical. Oh, yeah. And it, on the whole, it is a fun issue. But to me, is sadly, it's it's a little too short. Just because I think the, the, the old news storyline with the, the Dome and the Global Guardians, it's kind of ham-fisted in there. And I, I don't know why they made that decision because they certainly could have used, I think, those extra five uh, pages perhaps to just kind of set up more about the Millennium other than, hey, go check out the crossover Millennium number one, you know? Yeah, well, and because the Global Guardian thing has nothing to do actually with Millennium, it has to do with further issues of Justice League, it is even a little more confusing because, yeah, the the, the first story ends with, and you guys are going to love this, it says, to be continued in the pages of DC's greatest crossover series ever. <laughs> really? I don't think now, that, now. I think history is going to judge that differently but yeah. um and this is millennium number one and then the next story this old news is nothing to do with millennium whatsoever it's just telling a story that's going to build later and and let's just put it out there i mean i'll put it on the table i i do like the backup story but it is very you mentioned it is i don't know if you use the word jarring i don't remember but it is it is very yeah, ham-fisted i believe okay is what I said. it's it's very jarring going into it and because it is drawn by keith giffen it is in his nine panel grid style if you're familiar with it he would use the same style two years from now in legion of superheroes when he did the five-year later stories, and those are some of my favorite comic books. On Legion of Superheroes, that dark dystopian future, when he did the nine-panel grid, it was a thing of beauty. It is incredible. I don't mean to be critical, but at this point, I think that style was still developing. I feel like the nine-panel story just wasn't served all that well here. And I don't know if that's because we just came off of 17 pages of Kevin Maguire, or maybe it's because it's Justice League and it's not as much of a dark dystopian future. I'm not sure, but uh, it just it didn't work for me. Well, I can also think back to when I was a new reader for the Justice League. You know, uh, this this is I'm coming into this stuff, and I'm, I already have a tenuous grasp because to me it's still Superman, Batman, Aquaman, you know, Wonder Woman – and for me to just come in and say, okay, now I'm identifying with these characters. I'm really digging the story, and now you're bringing up some more Silver Age and 70s stuff that I'm like, I don't know who these people are. Why? Why? Why is this here? So for me, it was just not being educated, but it was just it was an interruption, you know. Yeah, and it works great 
on a reread. So right. for me, rereading these books, it's wonderful. It's building. It's fleshing it out. I'm like, oh, yeah, I see how it's all developing. But reading it for the first time cold, you had to be like, what does this have to do with exactly. anything? And it's okay. going to take many issues for that to pay off. So now, once you get past the art, and again, on the reread, I really do like the story of the Dome having to send their files to the JLI. You know, yeah. one, one agency being shut down in the favor of another. I mean, that's real life. That stuff happens. Then ja- Jack O'Lantern losing his temper was very good foreshadowing. And I like when Jack O'Lantern blasts Dr. Mist. Dr. Mist is like kind of on the ground, and he has a great line where he says, I suggest you leave now, Jack. Quickly, very quickly, before I forget we were once friends. Yeah. It's just, just like, whoa, this crap just got real. That's yeah. how you're going to end this podcast. So, you know. <laughs> this particular episode. Is exactly, <laughs> exactly. <right>. exactly. <laughs> um, on the other hand, one of the, one of the things I do like about uh, the whole issue is this is a really good setup, of course, for what w- will eventually become the Justice League Europe spinoff mm-hmm. title. Mm-hmm. Because the, the concept of, of establishing UN-sanctioned embassies throughout the globe really gives us some good storyline outlets for everything that will, you know, of course in hindsight we know this now, but eventually we'll, we'll get a, a hook there for <laughs> Paris, of course. Uh, we get the Beefeater storyline in London, which I, I love because that is that is classic sort of Monty Python and John Cleese. Um, we get, and Faulty Towers, of course, and we get the, the Antarctica, you know, hey, here, you know, you guys are idiots, why don't you go man the embassy in Antarctica? And then, of course, we get the, the hook in Australia with the with the invasion storyline that will be coming up in the next year. So, yep. yeah, uh, having embassies is a really just a cool concept because while they can be, most of the time, these characters can be anywhere at any time, having sort of the, the transfer tubes to say, oh, we need to be on the other side of the planet is uh, is a really good substitute for the old JLI satellite, or the JLA satellite, excuse me. Yeah. Now, you're, you talked about the, the, these embassies and, and the JLE. Let's talk about Paris for just a minute here. Now, I have to say, first off, and again, I realize this is terribly sexist, folks, but, but my name is the irredeemable shack it's right there in the name so you can't go in and complain about this because you knew what you were getting into from the start anyway Kevin McGuire does not know how to draw a woman who's not sexy. I mean, these women are beautiful. Now, part of that is to play a booster and beetle, is to just show them being overwhelmed by these gorgeous women and how they can barely control themselves. And Catherine Colbert is heart-stoppingly beautiful. And then when you get to Justice League in uh, Europe, when Bart Sears is drawing her, I mean, just, wow, love that woman. Anyway, Booster is hysterical here. He's got, I mean, he's so 80s. He's got the blue sports coat <laughs> with the sleeves rolled up. The feather hair. Right, the, the plaid shirt. With the tie. I mean, it's just so... I mean, nowhere else could this work except in an 80s comic book. What I love about him going on to, to try and hit on Catherine and it not working, I love they didn't show it. I exactly. love that. Exactly. Left completely to our imagination. Exactly. He goes up, and, and there's no way they could have... They could have never paid that off if they tried to show him getting shut down. It's like the vagueness in your in your mind of what you imagine is so much better than what they probably could have done. So just going from... He's going off to meet her, and then Beatles laughing his ass off. <laughs> it's just so funny. <laughs> And then it just keeps growing. I mean, the scene with Booter and Bo- Booter, uh, Booster and Beetle talking about this in the embassy with Black Canary, and Beetle can't stop laughing. And it just keeps growing and growing. Like a, it reaches a, cre- a crescendo where it finally bursts out with the blah ha ha. And it's it's so funny too because B- Booster, he when he bumps into Catherine, he you know he's thinking, oh my gosh, she doesn't recognize me. Whew, thank goodness because he's got his mask on because you know Clark Kent and glasses. Right. But anyway, he's got his mask on, so she doesn't recognize him, and he goes 
goes to leave, and as and all you hear is in the other room, they're introducing Catherine to Beetle, and Beetle just starts laughing again. <laughs> it's just like it's so freaking funny. And I realize us talking about a joke is probably sucks all the funny out of it. Just go get this comic, whether you buy the trade paperback, buy a back issue, get a digital on comics algae. I don't care. Go read this thing. It is an absolute hoot. Did you ever think, here we are, you know, 30 years removed, that that one little piece of this would just so define any one comic this far, you know, this this many years later? No, it's, it's like Fonzie going, hey. Hey, exactly. You know? <laughs> and if you listen to the interviews with Giffen and Dimitrios, they don't know who came up with Blahaha first. They know where they can find out. They know where the scripts are. They know where all that they can go research it, but they don't even want to. They, As far as they're concerned, they both came up with it. And, oh yeah, uh, it's it just it grew. It'd be so many things in this Justice League comic just came out of like a little gag, and it just grew. Like the Oreos, for example. This yeah. is the very first appearance. Uh, now Oreos have appeared in the series before this, but this is the first time Jean has demonstrated an affection for Oreos, and right. that I mean that's a thing to this day. Him and Oreos. That was that oh. was originally a Captain Marvel, and then right as I recall uh, in the beginning. Yeah, yep, yeah. exactly right. So you get the first instance of Jean and Oreos and the Blahaha in the same issue. That's like a mind blower. Hard oh, yeah. to believe. So uh, in the beginning, I told you guys that there was a guy who was looking at the, the, the JLI moving into the embassy, and he was a guy looking at the camera. He's a normal guy with a beard and glasses. And it's it's not like a huge panel, but it's on the it's on the first page on the left hand side. He's looking right at the camera, and you just you can't help but notice that and go, "That's got to be something." That's <laughs> you know, McGuire didn't just draw that. That that means something. So I reached out to Kevin McGuire on Twitter and asked him if uh, that was supposed to represent anyone, and he was kind enough to respond. Thank you, Mr. McGuire. And he said that is, according to him, and I quote, "a poorly drawn Andy Helfer," <laughs> which is the editor, of course, for the Justice League books. Uh, it, it cracked me up. So I, I felt that I, I knew I could tell from previous issues he's done that before. So that. He draws real people into the book, and we also we get another appearance of Jack Ryder, who's secretly the Creeper. Not that that's in, not that that matters for this issue, but I thought sort of like after he appeared in issue number six and seven, I thought Creeper kind of got written off and disappeared. But here he uh, continues, so I'll be interested to see how far along in our rereads how far Jack Ryder actually hangs around, because I know our buddy Doctor Ange has a strange, weird obsession with the Creeper. So. <laughs> he's kind of, the way they present him now, we could almost, he's like sort of the archetype of Bill O'Reilly now. Oh, you know, he totally to is. Yes, yes, Jack Ryder. My view from the this, the hot seat kind of thing, right? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> now, the New York Embassy, the stuff that goes on there where the problems just keep happening, is it's paced so well. Because sort of like a blue, uh, beetle laughing, you know, it, it keeps building and building, and finally with the crashing through the roof, it's just oh, hysterical. Just, uh, just an absolute riot. I am so embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, here's interesting. Captain Adam. This is really the first time we see Captain Adam in the comic. And he's a bit of a doof, really. <laughs> and uh, Jay Jones, I hope you take that personally. They, I get the sense that they didn't know quite how to write him yet. You know, this happens a lot when you're doing a team book. The writers have to take on this character and they're not sure how he operates and how he works. So he's sort of generic and bland, except he wants to help and he's, he's having trouble finding ways to help. So he tries to be helpful and it doesn't work out. So I get the sense they're still feeling that character on. I don't think they really get a handle on him until probably. It, well, uh, it reminds me of that scene from, from Justice League Unlimited, you know, where he was very straight laced mm. and, you know, stick up his butt and, you know, like, ma'am. And Supergirl, kind of when he turns his head, she kind of sticks her tongue out at him. And uh, it's just, it, it was that sort of thing. You, you figure he's very rigid because he's expecting military discipline yeah. and he's thrust into this gang of, of yahoos and misfits and, and trying to make something out of it. That could be. I, I feel like maybe you're reading more than what's actually on the page here, but because I, I didn't get that sense from him, but well, I don't know, you're, maybe so, because you're right. The last line of 
uh, he has, which is somehow I didn't think being in the league was going to be quite like this. Yeah. And Black Canary says it gets better, Captain. It gets better. So maybe you're right. Maybe there is more to it there than I was I was thinking. But man, that Justice League episode, Justice League Unlimited episode with him, yeah, yeah. Uh, super. <laughs> take the stick out, Corporal. <laughs> that episode is so good, so good. And let's see what else. Uh, just running through my notes here. Mr. Miracle, again, we've seen this on a lot of issues. And I never really noticed this in the previous reads, but how he always takes his cape on and off. I think it's just a nice sort of like he's working mode. You know, like you take your jacket off when you get to work, right? Well, he takes right. his cape off when he sits down to work. Or he takes his cape off when he's in a hurry to rescue someone. I love that little tidbit of him, especially because he doesn't take the mask off, though. Uh, I, I don't recall seeing him without the mask in any issues, really. Hmm. And he's got that weird mask where, like, it's fused to his lips, yeah. his eye, but his <laughs> eyes have open holes what is that about <laughs> and then okay i want to talk about guy gardner so you know we we all know guy gardner during this period after he got bonked on the head for a year he's pretty you know mr nice guy flower child peace and love kind of stuff but in he this, loves the carpenters as i recall yes, he does in this issue he's not as vapid as i remembered in fact there's one point when batman shows guy gardner the listening devices the bugs in the russian embassy guy gets pissed not the outrageous kind of like you know screaming, ranting, you know America kind of Guy Gardner that we're used to. It's more of like um he's offended, like his he's in, he's incensed, yeah. yeah. It's like his personal sensibilities have been, you know, offended. Now, he also takes the cue from Batman very quickly to shut up because they don't want to lead on and, and tell Rocket Red. And so Guy immediately goes along with Batman's BS story and makes up, you know, well, something about the bathrooms, if I remember correctly. <laughs> yeah. It's well, like, the pinch, the, the Vulcan death grip on his shoulder, I think, is what, yeah. But it just sort of says there's more to this guy Gardner than I remembered. I remembered him just being a total doof during this period. But clearly, there's he's 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 actually a little bit more like a real person rather than just being a total airhead. Right. And then I think we have to talk about it on page just after page 15. There is a Millennium checklist, folks. Uh. And boy, DC's marketing engine at this point, they were trying to milk every drop they could out of a crossover. No, that's not a bad thing, because you look at Legends, I love the Legends crossovers. They're awesome. And there's many more series down the line where I love the crossovers. Millennium just didn't quite work for me. Was this the first weekly attempt at a crossover? That I reckon, I can recall, yes. I don't okay. think Marvel had done one yet, and DC hadn't done one yet. And again, I, I, I'm kidding when I say they, they rushed it out to try and trick people. It's one of those things, if you go pick up your comics after a couple of weeks, and you get a bunch of comics, you, and you bring them home and read them, and you're like, ooh, I don't know if I'm going to keep getting this. <laughs> right. you know, over eight months, that would have been, you know, sales would have really seen a hit right and plus you know going into fall with the summer i could understand that you know he's sort of like oh what's what's this all about and they could they could have a hype machine but with the fall and leading into the christmas time eh, you know just yeah. not not your best crossover material now i will say there is one person a man who's sitting at home right now listening to his you know probably ipod generation one and listening to this show and he is yelling at it <laughs> saying how great millennium is and he is going to be on a future episode to defend the Millennium Crossover. So we will see. It won't be next episode, but an episode in the very near future. Someone will be on to defend Millennium, and we will see how that goes. It'll be probably just the ramblings of a madman. But anyway, <laughs> um, I think that's the coverage. I mean, we've got some more to talk about, but that's all of my notes. I love this issue. It is an absolute joy reading this issue. It's an absolute joy rereading this issue. It is so funny, so much fun, an absolute treasure. If, if you had to say, 
you know, favorite issues? Would, would this one fall within, say, your top five favorite issues of JLI? Yeah, I think so. You know, the, definitely the, the Guy Gardner-centric ones will probably be, but this is, you know, obviously for establishing what it is. And, and just going back in the last year and rereading everything, uh, this one really does stand out. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we didn't talk about the top of the show, but when, where Pat and I met many, many years ago was in a comic book store. I worked at the comic book store. He was a customer there. He hung around far too much to be reasonable. Um, <laughs> used to bring in the stinkiest breadsticks on the planet oh. and, and eat them in my store and chase the rest sweet, of the customers Sweet, sweet heaven. Oh, oh they so stunk good. so bad. <laughs> but we spent many hours talking about Justice League International. Now, this is after Giffen and Dimitrius were off the book. But right. we would wax on about the old days. And I got to think, we must have talked about this issue at that point. Oh, uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's a real highlight. And when I think, it's funny, when I think about history of reading JLR back then, even though, the, the, again, they were done by then, I think of you. Because you were sort of a, a real important part of me loving the series so much. And I remember the depression that I had in 1992 when it ended. The 60-issue the run of Giffen and Demetrius. And, you know, you had that sort of two-year period before we sort of got all the, the zero-hour stuff. So I was kind of listless there for, for two years with just not having that go-to title of the of the humor that I'd come to know and love. They tried, but, you know, when Jurgens took over, it, it just changed everything, of course. You know, it was breakdowns, so what do you want? Now, have you ever read formerly known as the Justice League, or I can't believe it's not the Justice League? I have. I, they they are very enjoyable. I, I, on your recommendation, I got one of them I did not even know had existed, and that was, the, the I guess, the new Super Buddies one, and I've, I've really enjoyed those because it's it's like going back to the you know old home days. They're so good. They're so much fun. And folks, I, I've said this on previous episodes, but if you haven't tried Justice League 3000, which just came out in the last few years, it is Giffen and DiMatteis together again. Howard Porter's doing the artwork and there is so much hints of the Justice League International era in there especially once the series gets going you get Fire and Ice and Guy and Beetle and Booster all together in the year 3000 mm-hmm. fighting people it's oh my gosh it's it feels like old home week to go and read those comics so check those out well sir we need to talk about some of the house ads that are in this issue okay first up is Sonic Disruptors it is <laughs> it what is, the hell <laughs> Behind the guys is a black star field. So they look like, you know, it's very galactic space-wise. They're standing on what looks to be a compact disc. And <laughs> on the left is these, you know, like space marines kind of soldiers. And on the right are rock and roll guys with guitars. Yeah. And it says, the United States Army versus the United States of Rock. Find <laughs> out who wins. It's Sonic Disruptors by Mike Barron, Barry Crane, and John Nyberg. 12-issue maxi series coming in September. Now, to be fair... How'd, it, how'd that go? <laughs> I've never read this series. Have you ever read any of it? No. No. Did you ever get a chance to finish the whole story, Pat? No. (laughs) And you know why you never finished that story, Pat? No, because nobody did. Right. DC never finished publishing it, which is insane. It's a 12-issue maxi-series, and they just stopped after seven issues. (laughs) (laughs) Now, again, I've never read it, so I I feel like I'm sort of, you know, taking the the low road and punching it in the gut when it's down. But, you know, oh, who cares? It's all in fun. I've read a lot of articles about it, and it sounds like what happened was the writers, Mike Barron, had no idea where the story was going. Now, this is a period where DC was doing lots of experimentation, they just had had huge successes with a bunch of offbeat books, so they were throwing everything they could at the wall. You know, Slash Maraud, Sonic Disruptors, you name it. it this one just didn't work. So a little, a little bit of trivia. In 1987, they were also working on a secret project for a Tiffany Debbie Gibson team-up in comic form. Are you serious? No. But wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> well, it finally came to, re- to realization in a sci-fi channel movie. Oh, that's uh, true. Where those two did fight, I think. <laughs> 
And this thing is, uh, apparently there's a whole lot of talk about people were really, really high and had no idea where this was going. So go out there and Google Sonic Disruptors. Read some of the articles. I'm not making this up, folks. There's so. a reason they don't give advances anymore. <laughs> I would say that the 50 cent bins are replete with these books, but I don't think I've ever seen more than one or two issues of it. So, <laughs> uh, next house ad is we, we had one of these last month, but it's a new one. It's for the Wasteland book by John Ostrander and, uh, Del Close. And this one is, it's an hourglass and in the top is, well, it's filled with water rather than sand. And the top is a fish actually who is starting to drown because the water is draining out through the, the skinny neck of the hourglass and the fish no longer is, it has enough water and is beginning to drown in the air and it says warning read these stories and tremble from mortal terror of the most dangerous kind wasteland series written by del close and john astrander drawn by david lloyd william mester lobes don simpson and bruce patterson a new deluxe series with three chilling stories in each issue unleashed in september now this one got by me i, I never read it and i may go back and read it now uh, just check it out because it sounds like a cool sort of concept but the one thing i noticed in in this ad was david lloyd mm-hmm. and of course I, I loved him in for you know his artwork for V from Vendetta, working with Alan Moore. So that is, that is definitely a hook for me. I, I'll probably check that out now. And uh, John Ostrander is a is a favorite of mine. Obviously, Suicide Squad is amazing, and he wrote Firestorm for a long time, and all of his books have just been great. And Del Close and I I last episode had said he was uh, an imp- I, a comedian, but it, as we find out in the feedback here, he actually has a long history of teaching other comedians how to do improv hmm. um, at Second City things. I mean, you'd love it. I mean, you, you oh yeah, improv, you have an improv background. And uh, so definitely check it out now. Also, one of our listeners, Michelle Fief, did an interview with John Astinger about this series. So check that out. It is over on the uh, www.factualopinion.com. And it's an interview back from 2012 where Michelle Fief uh, interviewed John Ostrander about Wasteland. Very good. And it's a great read. So wonderful. All right, Pat, let's move on. It is time for you to tell us a little story in a segment I like to call Character Spotlight. And this is where the guest is going to share some thoughts on some of the characters or one of the characters from this issue. It's not really, we're not really looking for an origin recap, but more about where the characters were in the DC universe just before joining the JLI and what kind of impact the JLI had on their lives and careers. And, uh, Pat, why don't you tell us a story? Let's not mince words. Shag gave me homework. I had to research. <laughs> <laughs> it was good because it's characters that I, you know, appreciated, but never looked a lot into their background. And I'm going to talk about the Rocket Reds. I know you guys kind of mentioned them in the last issue of the podcast. But um, just to kind of give you sort of a quick capsule review of the Rocket Reds, uh, they were introduced earlier in January of 1987 uh, as characters in Green Lantern number 208. And what we get from them is sort of the, the DC's nod to the Soviet contribution, you know, the Soviet Union being the other great superpower in the late 1980s. Uh, they, they did contribute to the superhero and global community during the Cold War. So it was a really neat concept that they're men in armored suits, you know, to try to show some kind of Soviet domination of of mechanized infantry. Uh, Earlier in Justice League, we saw in issue three, we met uh, Dimitri, whom we'll see later. Uh, Yeah, he's the Rocket Red number four. He sadly was at the receiving end of an attack by Black Canary when they were working, uh, I guess, in the Bialya storyline and caused him to lose a front tooth. That becomes sort of a trademark for him every time we see Dimitri uh, in that classic Maguire facial expression. We'll see him uh, with his missing tooth and uh, <laughs> that, that classic sort of shattered visor and the oi <laughs> that's great um, but for some reason in this issue we see it's featuring Rocket Red number 
seven, uh, who is assisting Batman and, and Guy Gardner at the sort of the review of the Moscow embassy. We don't know why he's there yet. Wink, nudge. Uh, but he, <laughs> uh, we were sort of alluded to that he's either sort of a liaison or maybe he is the official Rocket Red for the Justice League. But either way, he helps them overcome some of that hassling that they get by the KGB. And we will, as as alluded to mysteriously, we'll learn more about the true nature of Rocket Red number seven during Millennium. But the Rocket Reds were never really a serious player in the overall DC universe. They were sort of just, uh, you know, uh, mentioned here and there, and they made appearances in different different issues. Uh, but they did provide that necessary backdrop, and this is my geography background of the <laughs> sort of the human geographic and the social aspect of the USSR being a presence. Um, and that's good because it provides a context for these early issues. But now, unfortunately, they, they kind of date some of these issues. We, we've mentioned a lot how we've sort of seen like whenever you see Ronald Reagan in either Dark Knight Returns or in you know issues of the Justice League, that really anchors it to the 1980s, and that you know that's that's cool. It was cool at the time, but it gives a, a dated feel to our storylines now. So having the Soviet Union's your your average millennials now don't really know who the Soviet Union was or you know uh, how how they played into the history of the United States in the Cold War. This it's it's cool, but you know. It's it is, it is a staple. It is a, a time stamp on these issues in the early Justice League period. A couple questions for you. What is Rocket Red Number 7's real name, Patrick? Uh, it is Vladimir Mikoyan. Nice. We, we, yes. Got the, uh, whereas Dimitri will later talk about his love of moose and flying squirrel. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yes, he, he attempts to pick up uh, the little idioms of American speech. But, uh, yeah, we, we learn very little about Vladimir Mikoyan because, as we'll see, uh, there are other things in store for Rocket Red number seven. And now you talked about their creation in Greenlander number 208. Do you know who helped develop? the rocket red armor i do not but tell me uh, it was it's a direct connection to jli because it was kilowog my kilowog. friend i figured it had to be kilowog because yep. he's the master of mechanics and his uh, his society if i remember right is sort of a communist society well it's not it's not so much they subscribe to communism but it was all you know all for the people was right. the way his species was and so he goes over to the soviet union because he sort of sees a kindred spirit there and they end up putting him to work and that's, that's right. where the Rocket Reds come I from. do remember that now, yes. Attributed to Kilowog. Yep. And there's some great covers, too. Oh, my gosh. Like, uh, you know, a Cold War propaganda poster type covers in those Green Lantern Corps episode issues. And that's those are some of the ones I actually read back then because I was just fascinated by the iconography of those covers. And I love the Rocket Reds. Maybe it's because I was there for those Green Lantern Corps issues. I don't know. But I love the idea of the Soviets having a presence. Again, being one of the world superpowers, like you said, they should. I love the the outfits just look awesome. They look so cool. They're boxy, but I don't care. Right. Really, really. In fact, I wish I had an action figure like that. I know they did a they did do a Rocket Red action figure, but it was Dimitri and his more Apocalyptian. Um, yeah, then the new Genesis of yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and actually, I say that, but that I may even have that wrong. I may, I may have only seen a custom. I don't know if they've ever done a Dimitri action figure. Anyway, uh, I would love to see one of uh, that classic boxy armor. It's just so yeah. cool. Well, we've talked about a lot of humor. We've talked about a lot of the jokes, and this issue is packed full of them. But I think, Pat, it is time for... Pwahaha Award. 
And this is where we're going to nominate the funniest moment in the issue. Both Pat and I are going to pick one moment, and it will walk away with the coveted Wahaha Award. Mr. Pence, if you would, please, what is your nomination for the Wahaha Award? Again with the fascination with my dad. What? He's not here. <laughs> You've never even introduced me to him in 24 years. That's true. Never That's once. That's true. Well... Obviously, the Bwahaha Award being established for just this moment here in Issue 8, uh, how can we overlook the, the obvious choice is the inability of Booster Gold to close the deal to establish play a play a cred, yo, with <laughs> Catherine Colbert. Uh, again, you mentioned we never see it, but that's what makes it all the funnier. The explosive laughter that came to define the entire run of this, the Justice League – through Booster Gold, his failure, and Blue Beetle's uh, pickup on that to just, it builds their wonderful relationship, their chemistry as wingmen, you know, not since them have we seen anything like it, except maybe Ted and Barney on uh, How I Met Your Mother, but uh, yeah, this this is my nomination for the coveted Bwahaha Award. Well, it probably comes as no shock, but this is the second time in the history of this podcast where the host and the obnoxious guest have actually agreed on the Bwahaha Award. Folks, congratulations, Ted and Booster. You are going home with the Bwahaha Award. It is as tangible as the laughter we give you, gentlemen. It is. I mean, you summed it up perfectly. It's the delivery. It is the building of Ted's laughter in the embassy to the point where finally he's face-to-face with Catherine and Booster thinks he's gotten away with it. That It's just it is magical. It is hilarious. I love it. We could go on about it forever, but folks, just go read it. I actually hear it in my brain all the time. <laughs> oh, God, it's infectious. I mean, yep. it's, all right. Well, um, Pat, I need to actually ask you a favor. Uh, and this is a little unusual, but somehow a few of our Justice League members have gotten themselves a bit lost. Oh, no. Yep. Booster Gold and Blue Beetle, two of our most trustworthy members, I'm sure you know. Mm. Uh, they were supposed to be setting up the Canadian Embassy, because it's moving day, with our buddies Siskoid and Boss. But they apparently can't seem to figure out how to read a map and ended up in Australia. And the Tasmanian Devil, as well as our friends Paul, Hicks, and Rift, have apparently had enough of Booster and Beetle with their Crocodile Dundee jokes. And uh, given your expertise in maps, would you mind heading over there and giving them a hand in straightening it out and uh, perhaps diffuse the whole situation before Tasmanian Devil eats Booster alive? Sure, I'd be glad to. I appreciate that. I hear the transporters are fine now. I hear all the bugs have been worked out, so you shouldn't worry about any of that. It should be just fine. And while he's getting that squared away, folks, I'm going to read your listener feedback in a segment called Justice Log. All right, well, we'll try to move through this a little quickly because I don't imagine Pat will be gone very long. I mean, Booster and Beetle seem to be pretty reasonable guys. I shouldn't be hard to straighten this out. Anyway, first up, before we get into your feedback, is some news. Folks, we are doing our first giveaway. Very excited about this. If you've been paying attention to the feedback section on previous episodes, then you've heard the name Jared Albrick, the yard sale artist. Jared is our resident marathon runner and swimmer who listens to while he's out and about uh, being more athletic than the rest of us nerds. In fact, uh, we've got a tweet from recently that says he has gone 42 miles listening to various podcasts on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Oh my goodness. I was actually fortunate enough last month to spend an awesome afternoon hanging out with Jared and his two sons. Such a nice guy, and he's got some amazingly well-behaved 
children. Shockingly so. Makes me terribly jealous, and I feel like a failure as a father. But anyway, Jared is a fantastic artist, and he has been kind enough to donate a Guy Gardner commission he did. Uh, it's in full color, and he's donating it as a giveaway for our podcast. Oh my gosh! It's 11 by 17, and it's on Bristol paper. And if you want to see what it looks like, you can head out to our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Look for episode 8, gallery post, and in there you'll see what the uh, the image looks like. It looks fantastic. Now, in order to be eligible to win this Guy Gardner commission, here's what you got to do. you got to go out and post a comment on our website. Again, that's firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Look for episode number 8 and leave a comment there. And what we want you to do is tell us why you love Guy Gardner. And in your submission, we also want you to mention the phrase yard sale artist, because that's the name Jared goes by when he's doing art. Now, we're looking for a few sentences here, so don't feel like you need to write a book, but also don't just say, he's cool. You know, put a little effort into this, folks. Now, everyone that does this will be entered into a random drawing for this amazing piece of artwork. Now, remember, you have to go out to the Firewater Podcast website, go to Justice League International, episode number eight. Now, folks, it's on the website. Don't do this on Twitter. Don't do it on Facebook. I've been very clear here. Some of you seemed very attached to your social media. Anyway... On the website, post your comment on why you love Guy Gardner. Give us at least a few sentences. In there, be sure to mention the phrase, yard sale artist, and entries will close on Thanksgiving. And for you international folks, that's November 24th, 2016. And thanks to the incredible generosity of Jared Albrick. Please check him out on Facebook and Twitter as yard sale artist, folks. All right. Now, if you're keeping up with this episode and you want to leave comments on social media, remember, hashtag is pound FW podcasts. You can find us on Facebook as Just League International Blahaha Podcast. You can also find us on Twitter as JLI Podcast. And as I said earlier, it's all about building a community of online JLI fans around this show. If you're outside the United States, let me know. We'll assign you the appropriate embassy. It's good to know that, too, because if you're international, we have to filter iTunes properly to see your reviews. Speaking of which, iTunes reviews, folks, are so critical to raising the profile of the show and getting more people to notice it. And it is getting noticed by more and more people every month. But as of right now, we have not received any new iTunes reviews in the past month. So shame on you, folks. Shame. If you wouldn't mind, please, please go out there and do a review. It is truly appreciated. Each one really, really helps the show out. Now, all right. Now I'm going to be pulling your comments from our website, email, social media. I'm going to be just kind of cherry-picking some of the bits from there because there's so much feedback. I don't have time to read all of it while Pat's over in Australia and Canada. These comments are specific to our Justice League International number 7 coverage with Doug Zawisha of Comicosity. First up is Brian, who's also known as the 108th Sage. He says, My history with the JLI era league goes something like this. As a kid, I'd been a Marvel all the way, collecting Power Pack and X-Men while my brother got Avengers and Fantastic Four. But then my mom found out that comics were bad for us. I love that he put that in capital letters. Comics are bad for us. <laughs> and made us get rid of all of our comics. It wasn't until I could drive and had a job after school I could afford my own comics that I got back into them. By way of Grant Morrison's run on Doom Patrol and Peter Milligan's Shade the Changing Man and other odd things were eventually became Vertigo. And because my entry had been via DC by ways of its odd corners, when I widened my back issue diving away from the proto-Vertigo books and towards other cool-looking titles, I looked out on a near-complete run on a lot of post-crisis DC stuff like JLI, Hawk and Dove, and the Doctor Fate miniseries and series. Good stuff! The JLI especially nailed the humor and the humanity of what made these heroes so super. Awesome, Brian. Love it. Thank you for sharing your origin story. I love origin stories. 
Then we heard from Brad Dade at the Canadian Embassy. He said, One of the things I love about the podcast is looking back at comics in the 1980s. I came into comics the summer of 1989. I was inflicted with a severe case of bad fever that was sweeping the world at the time. Your podcast has reminded me how much fun and variety DC had going for him back then. This inspired me to go back and reread, or in some cases, read for the first time, many series from that era. Reading them digitally, the art simply pops and makes some books feel like I'm reading them again for the first time. And then over on Twitter, he had posted, The worst part of listening to the latest JLI podcast right away is realizing I have to wait a month for the next episode. <laughs> Thank you, Brad. Sincerely appreciate that. Then we heard from Michel Fife, and I apologize I pronounced his name wrong earlier on the podcast. Uh, Michel is a comics professional. He's a previous writer on books like All New Ultimates, and now working on his own creation, Copra, which you can get on Comixology. He says, This is one of the few JLI issues I was missing back in the day, so for the longest time, I assumed that Batman's one punch was so damaging it completely twisted Guy's personality. Kind of made Batman seem like more of a badass, but I wasn't disappointed to discover that it was a little mouse instead. I agree with Doug on Dr. Fate. Kev McGuire drew him the best, and this is coming from a huge Simonson fan. Now, my money, though, Byrne mixes the Reeves likeness with his own style, making his Superman top dog. Every other time McGuire drew Superman, he looked different. Always awesomely, don't get me wrong, but yeah, his cameo in this issue was great. P.S. Wasteland is excellent. Highest possible recommendation. Remember I mentioned earlier, he did the interview about Wasteland with uh, John Ostrander. You know Michelle's comment about Batman's being the cause of Guy Gardner's personality change? That uh, totally makes sense making that assumption. I mean, I think a lot of people forget about the mouse and Guy Gardner banging his head, but they remember the fact that Batman and punch Guy Gardner, and they make that same kind of assumption that Batman caused that brain damage. I hesitate to say brain damage, but you know, that changed personality. Then we heard from Ryan Daly, who's part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He uh, does shows like The Power of Fishnets, Give Me Those Star Wars, the now-retired Secret Origins Podcast. He's also a proud member of the Hair Club for Men. He's also the co-host on the upcoming Batman Nightcast and It's Midnight, the podcasting hour, which premieres the day after this episode was released. And he's a past guest on this show. And Ryan had this to say. He said, this was easily the most recent episode of this podcast. Seriously, Ryan? I spent all that time with the introduction, crediting him, and that's what I get? Get you, man. Then we heard from Rob Kelly, who's my podcasting life mate, also a member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does shows like the Film and Water Podcast, the Pod Dylan Podcast, the upcoming Treasury Comics Podcast and website, Power Records Podcast and website, Aquaman and Firestorm Podcast, and Who's Who Podcast. Oh, and the Aquaman Shrine website. And to know Rob is to love him, and I mean that in the most awkward way possible that you can imagine. Rob writes, fun episode. This was probably my favorite issue of JLI. Then I had made some comments about Del Close last issue, who was the co-writer on Wasteland with John Ostrander, and he said, Del Close wasn't so much as a comedian as an improv teacher. He pretty much worked with every major comedian you saw from the 1970s to the 2000s, training them in their early days. He can be seen as a guy who threatens Elliot Ness in The Untouchables, who says, everyone got can be gotten to. He's also donated his skull to the improv school he taught at, so when they do Hamlet, it's actually his skull. So, and finally Rob says, I love Batman trying to look mysterious on the final page, on stage of the UN. It's not working, Bruce. <laughs> Then we heard from Clinton Robinson from the Coffee and Comics blog, also the Armageddon 2001 Revisited blog. He says, a year? I never realized the personality switch stuck around quite that long with Guy Gardner. I do know that it pops back up in Justice League America Annual Number 5, but that's the whole Armageddon 2001 muckety-muck that may or may not have been better off forgotten. The laughs are there, but not as strong. 
Then we heard from Chris Franklin from the Firewater Podcast Network, uh, also in the Supermates Podcast, the Power Records Podcast, and part of the upcoming Batman Nightcast Podcast, and a past guest on this show. He says, This issue was great. The sight of the heroes in spacesuits still jumps out at me. I remember wishing they had individual branded suits like Ramona Fraden would have drawn them in Super Friends, but this was a different era. Nowadays, Batman's earphones would have had built-in bat ears. <laughs> he says, As much as I love Walt Simonson, I have to say I like Kevin McGuire's Dr. Fate best, too. And actually, Jerry Ordway would be next, even if he was saddled with drawing that goofy half-helmeted for most of his All-Star Squadron run. I would say I can totally relate to the scot-free Big Barda phone conversation, but since my wife is also part of this network, my lawyers are telling me not to say that. <laughs> then we heard from Bradley Null, who wrote us in sort of a poetic kind of way. He says, love the issue. Love the end of the Gray Man. Love the logical reasons for Jean to be the leader. Hated losing Marvel to Adam in the Cap Arena. Love the podcast. Four lines from Bradley Man. Well, thank you. That was fairly eloquent. Then we heard from Santarin from the Denmark Embassy. He says, hey, besides the Mud Hens, another of Toledo's other claims to fame is that the milk jug was invented there and Jeeps are made there. Bet you're like, oh, I know something about Toledo because I watched MASH. You know what? You're absolutely right, Santarin. That's where I was going from was MASH and remembering Klinger. But uh, I own a Jeep, so hmm, I should have known that. Then we'll hear from Martin Gray, who's at our Scottish embassy and writes the Two Dangers for Girl blog. He says, fun episode. It's always great to hear Doug. I bought this issue when it came out and loved it for the entertainment it offered and its potential to be realized. I remain disturbed, though, that the League would just accept Guy's personality change without having him checked out. And he goes on to say, uh, the Sydney Harbor Bridge... Is hugely famous. Now, stepping away, if you remember, we argued about the Sydney Harbor Bridge in the annual of Justice League because they, they showed the Sydney Harbor Bridge and we were saying it wasn't necessarily a recognizable landmark and it's become kind of an, a bit of a sticking point in the comments. Anyway, he goes, this, uh, and keep in mind, this is Martin from Scotland. He says, the Sydney Harbor Bridge is hugely famous to anyone not so thick that they need to qualify Paris by adding France. It's so iconic that it's inspired the Tyne Bridge in Newcastle. Now, Martin, I understand you have a bit of a hang-up when I say Paris, France, but you have to understand we have a lot of places named Paris in the United States, one not too far from me. So uh, I, I feel like I do need to quantify that. Then we heard from Paul Hicks, who's actually from Australia, and he says, thanks, Martin. The Sydney Harbor Bridge is, an, is, a, is the national destruction target of choice in sci-fi and disaster movies from Independence Day to Pacific Rim. <laughs> then we heard from Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog called Comic Box Commentary. He's also a member of the Legion of Superbloggers. And he says, as usual, this podcast shows me what I was missing back then when I passed this by on the rack. Should have been buying it. Then he says, shame that the Creeper just sort of faded out of the book. He would have added a little more insanity that could have provided some more laughs. Think of it like layers of craziness. Imagine if Beetle and Booster were acting Batman-like to the even goofier Creeper. Instead, people like our host probably wrote letters saying to remove this bright spot from the book. For shame. I love that last splash page. Yes, uh, Dr. Ange has a sick, sick fascination with the character Creeper. In fact, he's taken to a very, very disturbing habit on Twitter now. Whenever someone says something bad about Creeper, he posts this disturbing image of the Creeper spanking someone. So, ooh, thanks for that, Dr. Ange. Then we heard from Paul Hicks again from the Australian Embassy and the Waiting for Doom podcast. That's about the Doom Patrol. He says, I always felt like this was the final part of the prelude to the real Giffen de Mateus Justice League title. Enjoyed Doug's contributions as always. Yeah, I agree. Number seven is sort of like the end of the beginning. And from then on, it just goes in a whole different direction with the international feeling. So, yeah, I would agree with that, Paul. Keechy Baker says, as always, Shag, your guests make this another wonderful episode. I think that's a slam, Keith. Ah. 
Anyway, Keith goes on to say, I was getting these issues when they were first coming out, so I clearly remember my feelings about the issues. Then he says, I'm concerned about the missing O-Face segment. Any reason y'all skipped it this episode? Well, honestly, Keith, I think I just forgot it. So, uh, stepping back a bit for issue number eight for the O-Face Award, it's going to go to the balding gentleman on page 15. He was one of the movers. He's pointing out the Star Lab shuttle on approach, and he clearly, uh, as you see in his face, he looks very, very excited, and his O-Face is showing. So, uh, wait a minute. What were you people thinking about at home? I was talking about his mouth. It's like in the shape of a perfect O. What were you? Oh, you people are, you're sick. Get your mind out of the gutter. Anyway, then over on Twitter, Keith decided to, uh, he spouted off something that may sound familiar to folks. He says, Lady of Liberty, hear my plea for the land of the brave and the home of the free. Well, if you know that phrase, you know what character he's talking about. And if you don't, you will in a few years. Heard from Ramon Runez, he says that uh, Kev McGuire is one of the best artists to have ever worked on the Justice League. We're not going to argue with, with you, Ramon. Then we heard from Jimmy McGlinchey over at the Irish Embassy. He says that uh, over at the Irish Embassy, they have a memo circulating that any androids or mechanical people and robots affected by this podcast should contact Elron or Dimitri for counseling. And uh, that's sort of a reference to Doug from last episode. <laughs> uh, I love it that Jimmy plays along with my stupid gags. Then uh, Jimmy goes on to say, thinking back on it now, for the international team, it was basically an American team plus Rocket Red. Yeah, Jean and Mr. Miracle were not Americans, but they were based in the U.S. Only the introduction of Fire and Ice up the international element of the team. Who else could they have put in there? Well, they had a ready-made member in Dr. Light, but they did not choose to bring her back after her brief appearance. Other than that, it's hard to think of heroes that could have been brought that would have increased the international element without raiding other teams like Tasmanian Devil or Geoforce. Absolutely true. And even, you could say, Fire and Ice were raided from the Global Guardians. Then we heard from MTC. He says, I think an honorable mention for the Blah Ha Award should go to Andy Helfer for saying that the sound effects in space were artistic license. I totally agree with what you picked, however, as I'm a married man. <laughs> then we heard from my buddy Al Sedano. He says, Shag's comment about the cover grabbed my attention. Now, I had said in the cover number seven, my wife recognized that all the characters look sort of dead-eyed because there's these deep shadows in their eyes. She thought they all looked dead, which I had never noticed, but now I can't unsee. So Al says he's thought about it. He goes, I never noticed that before, and after looking at it for a while, I still don't see it. They look like they're just doing the serious group picture, that they're not dead. Anyone else? Is Shag nuts, or am I just the anti-Haley Joel? Fair question. Let us know, folks, in your comments. Then we heard from Tim Price. He says, big thanks to Doug for helping out this time. If his idea got Shag to do this podcast, then I owe Doug a package of Oreos or a quart of WD-40. He says, Mr. Miracle really shown in this issue. He had the best jokes, or he was the butt of the best jokes. However you like it, he saved the day. Now, back to Scott. I've been thinking more about how Kevin McGuire draws his mask. After some intensive research on Google Images, cough, cough, it looks to me like Kirby originally made the mask have a static slit for the mouth, but later images from Kirby changed the mask to move with his mouth, and there are nostril holes. So with Kirby's style that still looks like a simple mask, but with McGuire's realistic approach, it's a valid interpretation to make the mask an overlay on Scott's face, complete with molding to his ears and ear holes. Yikes! Mother box technology must be hypoallergenic. Then heard from Jeff Messer from the Geek Brain Popcast. He says, so look, I've been a JLI fan since the moving day issue. Oh, perfect. And he became 100% converted with the Wayne Bruce Wayne 007 homage. Kevin McGuire has always confessed to being a Bond fan. And I have a feeling that the Living Daylights appeared on the movie theater during the Gray Man story was McGuire's edition. As well, it's my favorite Bond movie of all time. Want to make something of it? <laughs> uh, anyway, he says, it was that love of McGuire's art and his love of 007 that really drew me in. Booster and Beetle made me stay. 
way. Chandler and Joey in tights long before friends were there for you. <laughs> I like that analogy. That's really good. Then we heard from uh, David Tony, who uh, goes by Got Maps over on Reddit. He was nice enough to post on Reddit a comment. He says, there's a great podcast out there called Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, which is going issue by issue through that run. The host on there suggested this run is basically The Office, that this is a workplace comedy. Well, David, I, I don't want to take credit for making that quote. I think that actually comes from uh, JMD Mateus. But you know what? It is a fair assessment. I do believe it as a workplace comedy. Then we heard from Ron Skazen Jr. I'm sure I slaughtered that, Ron. I'm sorry. This is another fantastic episode. So thanks, Shag. And Doug, I guess. <laughs> I think Ron gets my sense of humor. Then we hear from Billy Lacasse. He says, you guys... I also messed up your last name, I'm pretty sure. He says, you guys got to check out the podcast called Comic Zone Radio. Look for the Jam Mateus interview, segment two. He talks about his work on the JLI book. Just listening to it right now, by chance, very interesting, and you should t- check it out. I heard from uh, Lauren Studley. She says, I just found your podcast via Mike Gillis and thank the primordial ooze for it. Fantastic work. Glad you're enjoying it, Lauren. Then I heard from John M. Wilson, who does the Amazing Spider-Man's Classics podcast, Giant Superman podcast, and the New 52 Adventures of Superman podcast. And he was referencing issue number seven, where Superman was talking to the United Nations. He says, I don't know if it's the shifting Superman sensibilities in modern portrayals, but this intrusion here actually bothers me. Then he goes on to say, on the last page of issue number seven, there's a big sort of speech about how the world has changed, and it's no longer, you can't just focus on country borders, you got to think internationally. And he says, for the record, this is the exact same sentiment Superman expressed in Action Comics number 900. He says, it just bothers me that the Superman story got slammed unfairly when it's the beloved JLI's whole premise. Well, John, I I haven't read Action Comics 900 in a long time, Um, but if I remember right, he renounced his American citizenship in that. Whereas here, I would say the JLI didn't renounce their American citizenship. They just agreed to take on a larger mandate. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm not a Superman expert, so forgive me, but that is sort of like kind of what's rattling around in my brain. But then uh, TTR Morgan Z. Sowell chimed in to say that it was a different time in America and the Cold War was ending and it gave us a better opinion of the worldwide cooperation. That could be it. Then heard from Jason Ball Z. It says, apparently, the Irredeemable Shag mentioned me on the latest JLI podcast episode. It's pretty funny to hear someone actually say, Jason Ball Z. I would agree, sir. And there you go. You just heard it again. Heard from my buddy, Caleb Nauer. He says, I'm not saying I don't like him. I just don't get him. Shag had me rolling in regards to the Creeper. Great episode. Uh, then Dead Indicator on Twitter said, in the process of catching up with all the back episodes. Fun podcast. Thank you. Heard from Christo Lucid, who says, JLI and Lobo are a great fit. He is the cheese on the JLI burger. <laughs> Then heard from the Generation X-Wing podcast, my buddy Rob Williams. He says, look what just went up in the new place. And he posted a picture of himself within the background is the cover of Justice League International number one, or I should say Justice League at that point. And he's got it framed, hanging on the wall in his place. And it looks like he's getting ready to record a new episode of Generation X-Wing. Then I also want to mention, folks, if you are looking for some more JLI chocolate goodness, you can check out the recent episode of the Who's Who podcast. It was uh, where we covered the second batch of the 1989 annuals. We covered, uh, well, we should touched on Justice League International annual number three, and we talked about the embassy entries in the back of the book. It's just a small segment within the Who's Who episode, but a little more JLI action for you. Also, we got some really nice comments from, and thank you to these people, Pat Sampson of Longbox Crusade, James McCarthy, Ali Alameda, Renato Pastor, Closeout Comics, Let's Talk Aquaman, and the Warlock Thanos podcast. 
Finally, I want to take a second to thank all the folks that shared this show on their social media timeline on Facebook or Twitter. And, and by share, I mean, they, you know, they did the retweet or they actually shared it on their timeline. This is a long list of names, folks. I realize that. However, these folks have shown their support and promoted the show. And I think there's just an important part of this community is everyone else. And I want to be sure to recognize there's these people's names because they are helping to raise the profile of the show by sharing it out there. And our community is growing, folks. This time out, we're looking at about 70 names. So I'm going to do my best to go through here. I'm sure I'm going to slaughter some, so I apologize in advance. All right. Thank you to Abadaba, Andrew in Belfast, Between the Pages, Boosterific.com, Brad Dade, Buck Roulette, Calum Nauer, Cash Flag, CC, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Christopher Warden, Clinton Robinson, Closeout Comics, Codeman, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comics Couplets, Dallas Gibson, Decca Black, Doug Zoisha, Darren Ruth Sutherland, Eli, Frederico Hernandez, Film and Water Podcast, Gabby Lopez, Geek Brain Popcast, Generation X-Wing Podcast, Grant Richer of the Unearthly Visions Blog, Jake and Tom Conker, Jared West, Jared Albrick, Jason Unmasked, Jay Jones, Jeremiah Parker, Jonathan Brown, Joseph Crawford, Justice League News, Keechi Baker, Con L, Court Industries, Laurel Phillips, Let's Chat, Longbox Crusade, Lucien Desar, Luke Da, Man of Screen Podcast, Mark's Mess Podcast, Martin Gray, Matches Baloney, that <laughs> cracks me up every time, Mike Peacock, Mikey Ghoulish Flash, Misanthrope, Noah Tipton, Parlopod, Pat Sampson, Paul Riches, Rebecca, Richard Field, Rob Kelly, Rod Pruitt, Rolled Spine Podcast, Silver and Gold Podcast, Stella from Backworld Oracle, Sin, The 108th Sage, The Hammer Strikes, The Headcast Network, The Longbox Crusade, Tim Price, Trekker Talk, Two True Freaks, Warlord Worlds, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. Woof! My thanks to all of you for your support of the JLI Podcast. Your feedback is such a critical part of the show, and this community of JLI fans we're building together is fantastic. Now, if I've forgotten or missed anyone, I am sincere. Sincerely sorry. Just drop me a note and let me know, and I'll be sure to include you in the next episode. Now, folks, please keep those cards and letters coming. Be sure to visit our website. Again, that's fireandwaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Leave your comments on the show post there. That's where most of the action is going on. That's where most of the interaction is going on, I should say. You can visit us on Facebook. Again, Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast. Twitter, it's JLI Podcast. Or you can email us at jlipodcast at gmail.com. My thanks again to Doug Zuisha for helping to cover Justice League International number 7. Such a great collection of feedback from that episode. Now, we're going to take a quick podcast promo break, play a few commercials for our friends, and when we come back, hopefully... Pat will have straightened out Booster and Beetle and rescued our friends at the Australian and Canadian embassies. Hey there, my name's Nathaniel, and I'm here to tell you about an exciting new podcast. What are you doing? Oh, hey, Liz, I'm just recording the, the podcast promo. You're recording the promo for the Punch Like a Girl podcast? Yeah. You. Yeah, I'm, I'm one of the hosts. I have more podcast experience. What? You're going to sit there and mansplain to people about a podcast focusing on graphic novels and trade collections with female protagonists? Um, oh. Yeah. Can I at least tell them how it's available on iTunes and Stitcher and at punchlikeagirlpod.wordpress.com? No. Shoot. All right, well, hang on. I'll delete this. We'll try again. That's not delete. That's the button for publish. (laughs) 
Okay, folks, we're back from break, and let me see. Pat, you there? Hey, yeah, I'm back. All right, you made it back from Canada. How did it go? Well, you know what? They've got these great Dunkin' Donut places up here called Tim Hortons. I don't know how they made the mistake on the sign, but they're fantastic. And while I was there, I was able to get my copy of 2112 signed by Neil Pert. He was a legend among men, yes. Well, there's only like six people that live up there, so that's fine. (laughs) Awesome. Well, Pat, I sincerely appreciate, and I don't really mean that, but anyway, oh. you, well, I couldn't find anyone else, uh, for appearing on this episode of the show. And why don't you tell the folks at home, again, where they can find you on the interwebs or just any particular convenience store you might be hanging around on a Saturday night. <laughs> Strange things are afoot. Uh, well, <laughs> well, Shag, let me thank you. This is this was an honor to, to be invited onto the podcast, and uh, I'm, I'm a, a loyal listener. I really enjoy it. I think you're doing a great job here. Uh, but if anybody wants to find me on the Internet, that's pretty freaky, but uh, aside, other than those chat rooms, <laughs> exactly, yeah. But aside from my my love of comics, uh, I spend most of my time on Board Game Geek. I am a, an avid board gamer and war gamer, so uh, I have a profile on there. You're welcome to look me up if you want. If you have any questions about board gaming, I'd be glad to answer them for you. And also, don't forget, as I plug shamelessly. The TriviaFactory.com. That is my home base for my weekly trivia shows here in town. Check it out. We've got them all over the United States. And if you get a chance, go on out and have some fun, get some friends, and have fun with trivia. Well, Pat, and uh, I'll be honest for just a moment, and I'll probably need like an exfoliating scrub after this. But um, <laughs> when I started plotting out this show and laying out which issues I was going to cover and what would it, what it was going to do, this episode, I knew right then and there that I had to have you on the show, given our long-term friendship, uh, given our relationship with the JLI, and uh, I just I knew this was the one for you. So I really appreciate you being here. I I, I got to take a second. I got something in my eye. It's Sandy in this place. <laughs> so folks, come back next month when we cover. Justice League International number nine. That's right. The moment you've all been waiting for. Millennium is here. (sighs) Oh, wait. I think I totally misjudged that moment. Um, Oh, well, please come back anyway. And we'll have another guest host to cover the issue. Who'll be lucky enough to talk about the Manhunters with me? Sorry, you'll just have to wonder for the next month. But let's just say he's got some familiarity with homicidal robots invading his personal life. Thanks again, Pat. I really appreciate you being here. Absolutely, Shag. And can I just say to everybody, this is the probably the last time I'll be appearing on this podcast. Unless maybe one day in the future you'll pick another one for me. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's probably not going to happen. But anyway... Thanks for listening, folks. And until next time, I'm Shag. And I'm Patrick. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make something something of it? it? drive, right? Whoa, wait a minute. Has she been certified in a javelin? Why don't you take the stick out, Corporal? Captain, 